Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Local Japan Podcast. There is no one who gets more out of the podcast than I do because the podcast has really kept me honest to myself and made sure that I study and read a lot of content before producing an episode. And in the process of producing an episode, I have to figure out what's worth covering. So I end up reading a lot more books than I, than I share. Uh, some books I really love. There's a, a, one book about engineering called Why, Why Buildings Stand Up and the sequel, Why Buildings Fall Down. It's possible that I cover that on the podcast someday, but it was it's a really elegantly written book about engineering, but it's also uh, very detailed. So I'm sort of waiting for the right time to cover that one. But then there's other books that I cover that I that I read and then I think, oh my gosh, I have to cover this. This is perfect. As I go through this renovation project as uh, an amateur, going on this more or less alone. Uh, there's a lot of things that I have to learn on my own. There is an architect to be named um, upon permission. So, of course, that's where I get the expert help. But a lot of this stuff I'm just doing on my own. And it's it's a process. And I feel like I'm pretty deep into this subject of home renovation. But this process of reading and, and finding different sources is also very humbling because there's two thoughts that happen. Uh, the first one is, thank God I found this book because then it's going to dramatically improve the final product that I that I create with this property. And the second thought I have is, oh my gosh, I can't believe I didn't know this. And it really lays bare the endless ignorance that I have on the subjects pertaining to home renovation because there's just so much out there there's so much to learn so much to know and as just as one person there's only so much that i can i can cover and it's hard to figure out what what to cover and what not to cover Um, but what what i'm happy about is just i'm so glad that i learned about build science which is what i'm going to cover today so as i mentioned as an amateur my job here on the podcast is not to preach this stuff as if I know what I'm talking about because I'm learning like the rest of us. Instead, the way I'm trying to think about this is it's an opportunity for me to share what I've learned on this journey and to pass this on as um, something that I found helpful and that hopefully I could pass on to other people that are in the same field as me because I know there's a lot of, there's a pretty large and growing community of both Japanese and foreigners who are purchasing old homes in Japan and restoring them. And if this podcast can go help at least one other person to incorporate build science principles into their renovation, then I will feel like I have succeeded. Um, It's the most important thing that I've dug up in this whole journey of education, self-education so far. Without a doubt, I did. I've done a lot of, a lot of consumption of videos on YouTube of Japanese builds, and to be quite frank, the things that I've seen, with I think without question, has been just a lack of build science. I would like to be proven wrong, um, and I do know of one architect um, here in Japan who who has who is very well versed in this, but. From just you know my own personal firsthand experience of being an avid consumer of Japanese home restoration content on on the internet, there is a substantial dearth of build science in home building. This is not just amateur DIY restoration, but also professional reconstruction and construction. I think it would be it'll be important for me to actually speak with a an expert who knows the Japanese industry. But from what I've seen firsthand is that Japan is embarrassingly behind the rest of the developed world in quality construction around the board. I mean, the apartment that I live in, for example, is just full of these things that we'll go into today. Uh, thermal bridges, lack of air tightness, 
a lack of insulation, a lack of air quality control. And that's, you know, that's for a cheap apartment like myself, but also for really high-end builds, homes, high-end, like large corporations that are production builders, just a lack of any build science quality. And also that that also brings me to my my experience as a school teacher in the public system too. The schools are horrific. They're they're so poorly built and they're awfully hot in the summer, very cold in the winter. To the point where it's just painful. It's so painful that you can't even concentrate in, in the class. Oh man, that's a rant. You can see that when I get on this subject, I just go nuts. <laughs> I just go, I just rant so much. Um, I'm just so no, no, I'm just so passionate about this stuff. Anyway, so the person who I have to thank for first turning me on to build science is a very influential American builder whose name is Matt Reisinger. He is the host of The Build Show, which is an American uh, YouTube channel where he he shows the different details that he puts into his homes to ensure that they adhere to very high standards of comfort and quality and uh, energy control. And then he's also created this thing called the Build Show Network, where he's brought on other experts in other fields of the build industry. Uh, there's this one man, his, he's an architect. His name is Steve Basic. And I think he's quite a, a big figure in the architectural world. And he's been a very large advocate for build science and making sure to educate people on what build science is. And so those two have put on this YouTube series called uh, Build Science 101 that I loved. And I'll link that in the show notes. That's gone a really long way in helping me just understand the fundamentals of this stuff. Um, And I'm very grateful for that because they are great educators and they're doing a great service to, uh, of course, the build industry in the U.S., but at this point, it's come over to me. So I'm sure there's people all around around the world that are learning. So my hope is when I redo my my property that I've purchased here, that I incorporate the knowledge that I've gained in build science and try to create designs and details that ensure that the house is performing at a very high level. And lastly, um, thanks to them, I've I've dug deeper into into the build science world and discovered the Building Science Corporation, which is in Massachusetts. But they are a research institution that does work on understanding what build science is and how it could be incorporated into the private sector for private builders, commercial builders. The legend, I would say, in of the build science world is this man named Joseph Stebrick. He also f- was featured in an episode of This Old House, which I think some people might know from back when it was on, on TV. Um, since then, This Old House is also ha- has its own YouTube channel, so the age of television, as that kind of fades away, um, they still have a lot of content that they're producing on the internet on YouTube. And uh, it was so great to see Joseph Stebrick on an episode of This Old House, because the way he speaks is so clear and concise and simple and easy to understand. So he's, first of all, a great communicator, but also you could tell that he has such a deep knowledge and understanding of the subject because the way he speaks about it is so simple and it's so direct and uh, easy to understand. And so I'll link that video in the show notes as well, because um, if there's like one video to watch, to get a basic understanding of what exactly build science is, that that video will do a good job. And so I have been dancing around the two words, build science. And so now in the podcast, we will finally get into that in great detail. And we will do that through the book, Passive House Details, Solutions for High Performance Design, which is written by Donald B. Corner, Jan C. Fillinger, and Allison G. Kwok. Uh, these three authors are in the Oregon area. I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Donald Corner and Allison Kwok are professors of architecture at the University of Oregon. And then Jan Fillinger, he's actually Swiss, 
which is very cool. Gives me a little connection to him. But he came to the United States to study architecture, and he's now a practicing architect in the Oregon area. And if I'm not mistaken, again, uh, Donald Corner and Jan Fillinger both have Masters of Architecture degrees from the University of California, Berkeley. Go Bears. And I do know that Berkeley has a very good architecture program, which is odd because the architecture building is my least favorite building on campus. In any case, we will go, we're going to learn all about build science today on today's podcast. And I'll do my best to communicate what I've learned and hopefully pass it on so that the next person who um, starts to renovate a house in Japan or anywhere for that matter can do their own research, deep dive into the subject, and come out the other end with a high-performing, comfortable, beautiful house. The Hayfield House in Bolton, Connecticut, is sited on a gently sloping three-acre, tree-rimmed hayfield. The Hayfield House is designed for a family with three young children, with the understanding that the home will need to be flexible and adaptable to keep up with the family's changing needs over time. Given the rural surroundings, the clients were interested in building a house that was compatible with a neighboring New England vernacular. But, as their personal tastes were informed by their having lived, in cosmopolitan areas, they did not want their home to be completely defined by a country aesthetic. The result is a home with a traditional building form and window openings facing the street, and with larger areas of glass and less traditional detailing facing the field. The interior plan is open, allowing flexible use with great views of the south and west facing floor to ceiling triple glazed windows. The detailing of the interior is also clean and simple, with an exposed wood structure in the living room and white cabinetry contrasted by exposed concrete floors and simple painted surfaces. The goal of reaching the passive house standard for energy performance was set relatively early in the design process and informed several fundamental design decisions, including the compact massing of the building, south orientation, and large areas of glazing. The building shell is also detailed for energy efficiency, with highly insulated walls, ceiling, and foundation, and includes a ventilation system with heat recovery. In concert, the form, orientation, glazing, and building shell result in a building that uses 90% less energy for space heating than standard construction, and is comfortable and healthy to live in with space heating demands on the coldest winter nights satisfied by the equivalent heat output of a hairdryer. And that is an excerpt from one of the case studies in the book, this book is very simply laid out. It starts with passive house details from the foundation, going up to the walls, going to the roof, then talking about windows and doors, so openings, then going into how to deal with appliances such as water, electrical, gas, plumbing, and ending with uh, highly detailed case studies that really give a holistic view of how all of these parts of the house work in concert as one whole system to meet the passive house standard. So what is passive house exactly? We can go straight to the book. Passive house is an ultra low energy design standard. It pushes the envelope, both figuratively and literally, on the design of building enclosure elements. A passive house, not necessarily a house, as larger scale projects become the norm, will exhibit very low annual energy demands. These demands are constrained by the standard in several ways. A maximum allowable heating demand, maximum cooling demand, and a strict limit on annual primary energy consumption. There is also a limit imposed on infiltration rate. What I've learned by studying different passive house case studies is that in many cases, passive houses that have solar arrays on their roofs, they actually produce a net positive of energy for the house, and they actually sell that energy back to the city. And so uh, because the house adheres to such high standards of low energy consumption, that they're actually making money on the house um, through their solar array. 
of course, that's not something to be expected everywhere, um, especially in Japan, where it's not so easy to put solar on the roofs of your tiled, old tiled kominka, and probably not desirable because it doesn't look good. But in any case, the place where I meet Passive House is that it saves me two things. Uh, it saves me money because I don't have to use up a bunch of electricity and pay for that bill. Um, and it also saves me in terms of comfort because I could be sitting here in the middle of February and I don't need to turn anything on. I can just be happy and warm in my bed or on the couch or it could be blazing hot outside in the middle of July in that horrific Kyoto humidity and I could be comfortable. What I've learned from the Build Science 101, which I had cited earlier, is that there are four major elements that we need to control for. And the four things are in a hierarchy as well. So the number one most important thing to control is water. Because if you don't control water and water gets inside your house or it gets inside your walls or in your roof or in your foundation, it will destroy it over time. It is the largest reason for repairs and for contractors coming back a second time to repair their work is because they did not control the water. The second thing is air, controlling air. The third one is vapor. And the last one is temperature. Um, but the reason why they are in that hierarchy is because water is the most consequential. If you don't if you don't control it, if you don't have gutters that wash the water away from your house, if you if you have cracks in your windowsill that can seep down into the wood, it's going to destroy your house. Air is the second most important, largely because air contains within it a lot of air uh, water molecules, and if those water molecules can make their way inside your house, it could damage your house. Uh, vapor is of concern for the same exact reason, except that it just moves a little bit slower. And so vapor is not gonna be as consequential, for example, than sprinklers that are continuously hitting your wall every single day. Vapor is a problem, but it also moves at a slower rate, and it also depends on the season. And last is temperature. It is very important, but if you are a resident of a house and your air conditioning breaks down, or if there's a crack in your window, that's something that you might be able to leave there for a couple of days and get at, get that fixed within a week's time. But if you have a water leak and you have water gushing into your kitchen, you're gonna want to, somebody to call want want somebody to call and get that fixed within the next hour. And how that relates to passive house is that a passive house is one that can control these four elements in a masterful way using high quality design. And my assumption is that homeowners in Japan can readily relate to this because Japanese houses, they're able to do a good job of managing these four things in the sense that because the houses are so drafty, and so open that if water does get into the foundation or get into the into the walls, it's not a big deal because it, can, it has a potential to dry out because it's so so open. But at the same time, it's really uncomfortable, right? So yes, maybe the the walls are not going to rot so much because that water is able to dry out and evaporate. But at the same time, if it's winter time, you're freezing cold inside your under your kotatsu or it's summertime and it's blazing hot and you have all the windows open. Um, you have bugs coming into your house and you have fans on. And you're also consuming a lot of energy to try to stay somewhat comfortable. Okay, so here the book does a better job than me of concisely explaining the relationship between Passive House and Build Science. They write in the introduction, A passive building is designed and built in strict response to five building science principles. One, continuous insulation through the entire envelope without any thermal bridging. Two, 
extremely airtight envelope, preventing infiltration of outside air and loss of conditioned air. Three, high-performance windows, typically triple-paned with high-performance doors. Number four, a balanced form of heat and moisture recovery ventilation with a minimal space conditioning system. And number five, management of solar gain to exploit it during the heating season and minimize it in cooling seasons. So the thing that I really loved about the Build Science 101 series on YouTube is that they, uh, Steve Basic, the the co-host, he drew a house that like any, you know, any kind of toddler would draw, right? You have a house with a roof and then you have the, the two walls and then you have the foundation at the bottom. And what he drew on the house was a water barrier. So you have to have a continuous envelope around the entirety of your house that protects your that protects your house from water. And then the second most important element to to control is air. And so inside of that envelope, he drew another line that was com- completely continuous that went all across the roof, through the walls, to the foundation, back up the walls and up the roof again and connected and that was an air barrier. The third one which is corresponds to the third most important element, which is vapor. He, he drew a, another line within that, which was the vapor barrier. That was also continuous. And then fourth, you want to control temperature and throughout. And then so he again drew a line continuous throughout the entire house that represented in an envelope of continuous insulation without any thermal bridging throughout the house. And so that like, gives a visual representation of exactly what this passage is saying. As an example, it's very easy to create a continuous insulation envelope throughout a wall, right? You can get bats of mineral wool or fiberglass insulation, and you just line it up against the wall. Pretty easy. Um, but what becomes really hard is how do you connect the wall to the roof and how do you connect the wall to the foundation? So those, those connective areas where the floor meets the wall and where the, and where the wall meets the roof and also where there are openings. So that might be a window or a door or a dormer. Uh, those, those details are very difficult and that's what this book is all about. Here's some important points. I wanted to cover in a section called Site and Climate. Ultimately, buildings should develop a reciprocal relationship with the site. Site attributes should help to reduce the environmental stress on the building. The building, in turn, should improve the ecology and microclimate of the site. A passive house design, as distinguished from a passive solar design, does not imply a house that is heated by the sun. A passive house relies on a high-performance envelope to reduce energy demands for heating and cooling. So I like that one because you could have a really poorly designed house in Japan, for example, um, or not, not even poorly designed, but it's just old, right? I mean, the house that I've got is, is a beautiful house. It's still standing after, you know, centuries. And uh, for its time, it was, it was really well built. It's it's uh, survived through earthquakes and natural disasters and typhoons, but it's old, so it, ha- it hasn't been updated to modern standards. Um, but what I could have, what I could do is like chop down chop down the rainforest nearby, set up a solar array, and offset my energy consumption, and you know sit, you know tell myself that I'm actually um, you know doing some kind of good. But you know that's not really the truth of it. Um, the thing that's great about the passive house that it says here, it relies on high performance and a high performance envelope to reduce energy demands for heating and cooling. So instead of cutting down that rainforest and setting up those solar panels, what I can do is create a super high performance envelope to reduce my energy needs and to make myself comfortable without having to waste a bunch of money on energy bills. Um, the other thing is that it says that the um, 
the building and the site have a reciprocal relationship. And so every house will be a little bit different. And what I'm going to try to do through this book uh, review is to pick out things that I find important for the Japanese context. Within the Japanese context, of course, it's going to vary quite a lot because the country is a very long country with different climates. Um, there's going to be different kinds of houses that might not apply to you, but I'll pick out things that I find important for standard Japanese design. I'm going to get to each section in terms of the details for each part of the house, starting with foundation, going up to the roof, and so on. But first, the book has different sections that I've highlighted that offer really important general principles, and um, so that if you understand these going forward when you renovate your own house and you keep these in mind, you're going to build a much better product in the end. So the first one is about performance on the whole. The book says, to be fully effective, this insulation must be uniform and continuous. In a passive house, the levels of insulation are much higher than in conventional buildings, and great care is taken to balance the targets established for the floors, the walls, and the roof. The equations for heat loss are cruel masters. It is the total that matters. If heat is streaming out through inadequate walls, it is virtually impossible to overcome that by lavishing more attention on the roof. Similarly, within an assembly, there cannot be gaps or discontinuities that allow heat to bypass the insulation through, quote, thermal bridges. So what they're saying, in essence, is that you might have a home builder or a manufacturer that says that they have an insulation product that has an R value of 40, for example. And an R value explains how well a material insulates. So a very high R value means it insulates more. So an R value of 40 to 60 is insanely high, whereas uh, like a wooden stud, so just a, a piece of wood, has a very low R, R value. I don't know the exact value, but it's I think it's a single digit number. And glass is even worse. And so, you know, some manufacturer might say that their material is an R value of 40, and so a home builder puts this uh, this insulation all across the the house, and so they add up the insulation plus the the wall, and so they might say that they have a they produced a house that has an R value of 40 something 45 I don't know, but what they're saying here is that you have to take into consideration every single component. So yes, you put on this material on the wall that is has an R value of 40, but then you also have to take into account that 20% of the house is made of windows and it's made out of glass. You also have to take into account the fact that um, within the wall there's studs, so these wooden studs. Um, and so the overall, if you add, if you sum up all of the components together and all of their R values, it's going to be inaccurate for you to advertise that you've built a house with continuous R value of 45, because in reality, it's going to be somewhere closer to 41 or 42. In the end, design is an iterative process that must bring the pieces together. As the various building assemblies are reviewed and selected, it is important to sketch the junctions where one meets the other. One must be able to trace all of the barriers through the details to affirm their continuity. The water shedding surfaces should lap continuously downward and outward. The weather resisting barriers should do the same. The thermal and air tightness boundaries of the building must be explicit and unbroken. One must be able to trace all of the barriers through the details to affirm their continuity. The sequence of construction should be rehearsed in the process of drawing to determine if the continuities that are required can be feasibly accomplished, particularly the challenging conditions such as the corners of a window must be thought through in three dimensions, although two-dimensional drawings are produced. All of these processes must continue as the details are refined. It is good practice to indicate in the final documents when the airtight layer should be tested. And one last piece, they write, because thermal bridge analysis is so specific and detailed, it is time-consuming. In addition to performance and durability impacts, 
This is another reason to create thermal bridge-free details whenever possible. With experience, designing thermal bridge-free details becomes second nature. So that word, it comes up a lot, and so it is definitely worth defining now. So I'm getting this description from an e-learning website, PassiveHouse.com. It says, heat makes its way from the heated space towards the outside. When you have warm air and cold air, they want to enter a state of equilibrium, and so they're going to be attracted to each other. So heat makes its way towards the colder area. In doing so, the heat follows the path of least resistance. A thermal bridge can be described as a localized area of the building envelope where the heat flow is different in comparison to adjacent areas. You might have a very thick piece of insulation between the inside and outside of your house, which is good, but you, you might have a structural element like a piece of wood that spans from the exterior wall all the way into the interior wall. And so that piece of wood is going to bring along with it, for example, cold air that's gonna come in to your house. And that's a thermal bridge. This next section is one of my favorites and I will quote it at length. And one reason why it's really important for us is because Japan is a climate zone with four very distinct climates. And in general, it's very cold in the winter in many parts it snows. And in the summer, it's incredibly hot and often very, very humid. And so this section, which is about moisture management, will be key for anybody who, who wants to do retrofitting and renovation in Japan. The Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation organizes best practice guides for moisture management around the four Ds of enclosure design. Deflection, drainage, drying, and durability. Deflection refers to shedding of water using overhangs and projections to push it well away from materials that need not be repeatedly wetted. Drainage refers to a second line of defense that captures water at a weather-resistant barrier and returns it to the exterior. Durability refers to selection of materials that can withstand the moisture they are likely to receive without degradation. Drying is the most complex of the concepts. It refers to the seasonal balance between the accumulation and removal of moisture. Assurance of adequate drying requires a study of all the ways in which heat and moisture move through a building assembly, referred to as hydrothermal performance. During winter conditions, the interior air of the building is typically warmer and moister than outdoor air. Under such conditions, moisture, as well as heat, tends to migrate towards the outside via air leakage and direct transmission through building materials. When something is hot and something is cold, those two things want to meet at equilibrium, at the path of least resistance. In this case, the hot indoor air is going to move towards the cold outdoor air. Okay, they continue. The moisture migrates until it arrives at one of three potential outcomes. One, it encounters a barrier, also known as a vapor retarder, that limits further travel. So oftentimes this is like a piece of plastic uh, or some sort of polyurethane sheet. Uh, number two, it reaches a surface that is cold enough to cause it to condense. Or three, it escapes to the exterior. The most problematic result is interstitial condensation. I just searched that up and what that means is it's a space between objects. The assembly should either have a vapor retarder located to prevent moisture from reaching the dew point, or it should be as vapor open as possible to remote cycles of drying. During summer conditions in humid climates, the outdoor air is warm and moist compared with the indoor air, and so the heat and moisture flow is from the outside in. Building assemblies in these locations should be designed to resist inward vapor drive. In some challenging climates, there is both extreme winter cold and extreme summer humidity, like in Japan. In these circumstances, assemblies must be designed to cope with vapor drive from both directions. If vapor retarding materials are present in the assembly, it is important not to create a condition where part of the assembly is surrounded by vapor retarders on both the inside and the outside. 
This is known as a vapor retarder sandwich, and it prevents accumulated moisture from leaving the assembly, which can lead to mold growth, decay, and or degradation. So I included that last part because I saw on a video of a Japanese carpenter doing this, where they put plastic as an air barrier, but it was also holding up these insulation bats. And so what's going to happen in that house is in the summertime, that moist summer heat is going to drive into the colder air conditioned interior. It's going to go through the wall. It's going to go through that insulation and it's going to stop at that piece of plastic because it has nowhere else to go. And it's going to condense there. And then that condensation is going to start to rot away the insulation and that wall is going to rot. And so that happens. It happens a lot. It happens in the United States too. And earlier I mentioned Matt Reisinger, the host of the build show and a custom builder across the many builds that he's done and the many videos that he shot to feature the different details. There's always one thing that he's said is to keep the vapor barrier vapor open. So we, we talked about this in the book. You do want to control that vapor, but what Matt Reisinger typically recommends is to make sure that that vapor control layer is vapor open so that regardless of where the vapor is going, whether it's driving in to out or driving out to in, it'll be able to move so that it can dry out rather than get stuck in the middle of the wall. I think that's a good point to keep in mind and that's something I'm going to have to think about once I start to layer on these different control layers onto my own property. The book continues uh, by quoting Joe Stebrick, who is the, the founder, one of the founders of the Building Science Corporation. And he has this incredible article on the perfect wall, which I will link in the show notes too. So let's see what he says here. Author Joe Stebrick recommends an assembly that he refers to as the perfect wall. In the perfect wall, all of the barriers, air, vapor, and water, are developed in one plane at the center of the assembly. The surrounding materials are free to dry either to the inside or the outside, thus avoiding a vapor sandwich. If there are vulnerable materials, like wood studs, on the inside, there must be sufficient moisture-resistant insulation on the outside, such as mineral wool, to prevent the barrier plane from cooling to the point of condensation, also known as the dew point. This type of assembly is readily applicable to passive house construction, where the air barrier is frequently developed at the sheathing plane near the center of the wall. Insulation, commonly added to the exterior, can prevent that plane from reaching the dew point. The concept of the perfect wall is also applicable to the perfect roof. So we have just covered some of the main points that I found to be foundational. And those were in the chapters about different concepts and methods and design development for Passive House. The next part of the book goes, as I said, into detailed chapters per section of the house. So in chapter three on floor systems, they write here that the main concern is where the floor meets the foundation. So as we talked about in Passive House details, they're really concerned about connections between parts. So where the floor and the wall meet or where the floor and the foundation meet, those areas are susceptible to air leakage, water leakage. And so we have to be very careful on how to solve these problems. They right here. There is an inevitable density of material at the rim of the floor plate needed to transmit vertical loads and tie the building together in order to resist lateral forces. In other words, the wall needs to sit on the, on the floor because it's structurally important for the house. And they continue, if all this material gets too close to the exterior surface of the building, it becomes a potential thermal bridge. 
in Passive House, what they want to do is they try to insulate the structure as much as possible and keep that structure away from the outside, away from the elements, away from nature. Because the closer that nature can touch the structure, the more vulnerable it will be to both weather damage and just simple thermal bridging. So the other thing that's important to know about Passive House is that the walls are typically much, much thicker than your average house. So like in Japan, and like the, the property that I have now, the the walls are, are pretty thin. You know, you just have a pillar that makes up the wall and it might be six inches thick or so. And that's it. That's the wall. Uh, but in Passive House, you have layers and layers of material that make up the wall and it ends up becoming much thicker. It's just a, it's just a shift in mindset on how to build. And we will now get into that with chapter four on wall systems. The thing that's interesting about American framing is Americans use standard wood materials to build the walls, right? Like you have two by six studs, you have two by four studs. There's new new different kinds of studs that are being being developed by manufacturers. There's it gets more complicated, but uh, I joists or LDLs and no LVL laminated veneer lumber. Anyway. Long story short, um, the Americans are, they build walls in a very different way than Japanese do. So we have to keep that in mind when we read this chapter. The economy and versatility of wood light frame construction is fully demonstrated in the making of walls. Stud walls have evolved as an open system in which there are simple rules that govern the relationship between the parts, the structure, the enclosure, and the services of the building. Within this system, the parts themselves are interchangeable, providing the opportunity to choose from a vast array of alternative elements that have been allowed to evolve to higher levels of cost-effectiveness and performance. The stud wall is a relatively inexpensive container that provides shelter for components that are far less expensive than they would be if they were exposed to wear or damage. The cost savings on electrical wiring, plumbing, small dimension ductwork, and voluminous installation materials usually pay for the stud frame that protects them. Here we continue to, as I was explaining earlier, for higher levels of performance to be reached, a layered or multiple leaf assembly is needed. The basic strategy consists of a moderately deep stud cavity coupled with an external overlay of rigid insulation to cut down on the thermal bridges. But the one problem is, is I want to be able to show the Japanese wood that's been there. You know, the exposed wood is aesthetically very beautiful and that's something I don't want to sacrifice. So I'm going to have to find a way to create well insulated and continuous walls, but try to maybe sacrifice on the thickness because I want to preserve, you know, the ability for you and me to enjoy the bare exposed wood. In the end, they say, in summary, the logic that prevails for heating climates is to construct an inner structural leaf with sufficient framing density to support and connect the floors and roof, combined with an outer insulating leaf with as little framing density as possible to reduce thermal bridge effects. So that's the goal, and I'm going to have to figure out how to do that. The next section is on roof systems, chapter five, and this one is the most difficult for me because I have to preserve the beauty of the tile roof, but also make sure that it doesn't leak water and air. The, the, the roof is actually pretty, pretty strong. I don't think there's any water damage at all, but there certainly will be air leakage and it's also very dusty. And so I think the air quality is really poor if you just leave it exposed. So there has to be a way for me to improve the performance of the roof and especially improve the continuous insulation and air tightness at the area where the roof meets the wall. So that connection will be very, very difficult and complicated. They have one sentence in this chapter. It says, the highest performance levels are reached if a layer of rigid insulation is added over the top of the roof framing. So the way I like to think about that is it's like a beanie or a hat that you put on top of your head, right? 
just like with that jacket that you put over the walls, you want a hat to put over the top of your your head to keep to keep warm. The one problem with that is that I don't. It'll be very labor intensive for me to take out all the tiles and then retile the house. That would be pretty intense. So I'm gonna have to find another way to do it. Um, but there are options in the book that can allow me to insulate from the inside. And I should mention that the book has some excellent information on the case studies. They have plenty of pictures and architecture level sketches and designs that have labelings for every single layer of the of the section of the house and they label it with what kind of material it is. So this is really invaluable for anybody who's in the middle of a project or getting ready to plan a project and is, you know, they want to source materials. This is perfect for you. And each chapter comes with maybe five or six case studies so you can learn about the details of different foundations, different walls, you know, the ways that different people are building through the United States. Chapter six is on openings for windows and doors. They mention, of course, that if you have a very thick wall, then you have, you'll have a lot more options for passive house details. The book again is concerned with connections. So they say that the challenge in all cases is to maintain the integrity of the air barrier and thermal control layers at the interface between the window and the wall. This must be done without compromise to weather resistant systems that rely on redundant layers, free drainage and drying to be fully effective. So that's the thing. You could have a very, a very high performing passive house if you didn't have windows and doors because it would be like a, a bomb shelter, right? Just perfectly sealed from the outside. But this is something where aesthetics and, you know, human design really take precedent. Like you want to have sunlight to enjoy and windows also play a very important part in the aesthetics of a building. They create balance. They give the building a sense of character and personality. And so you need these windows. They're the, one of the weakest components of a house in terms of continuity and insulation, but you need them. Okay. The last section that I'll cover today is on openings for mechanical, plumbing, and electrical. They say, passive house performance standards require that the integrity of the air barrier and thermal isolation barrier be maintained completely and consistently. As mechanical, electrical, and plumbing systems are integrated into the building, the first goal is to eliminate punctures through the air barrier and cold bridges across the insulation insofar as possible. If the passage of service systems through the envelope cannot be eliminated, such events must be reduced in number and effectively controlled. In the past, openings in the building envelope for the passage of service systems were considered a minor energy loss. They were often ignored in favor of simple, low-cost approaches to systems installation. Common system components and traditions of practice that evolved in this context can be hard to replace or change, particularly when they are reinforced by requirements of the building codes. As one example, the fireplace, enduring symbol of hearth and home, has long been recognized as an energy liability. Without doors and combustion makeup air, the flu, which is uh, just means passage, the flu draws heat from the house long after the positive thermal contribution has died away. As I read this and as I think about the planning for my project's renovation, this is the kind of stuff where I definitely need tradesmen and experts to support me because in addition to the foundation, mechanical, plumbing, and electrical are, are specialties that, you know, that require expertise and I'm going to need help. Okay, so continuing on, they write that the first method to eliminate punctures in the envelope is to question the need for a given systems to engage the envelope at all. This is interesting. Uh, a traditional clothes dryer takes conditioned air from the house and pushes it out through a relatively large hole in the wall. This has been the most convenient way to expel the moisture from wet clothes. By contrast, a condensing dryer attacks both of the former problems. Using various means of condensation, these devices extract only the water and recycle the hot air either back to the space or back to the machine. The hole in the side of the house is eliminated. So they just have a picture of a condensing dryer. I've never heard of these things before, but they're, it's an example of new technology to, to solve these problems. 
yeah, it's a good it's a good exercise. Like, do I really need this thing? And if I do need it, then you know I'm gonna have to sacrifice some performance quality. But if you know if I can purchase different uh, utilities that can reduce the punctures in the in the structure, then it's worth considering. The last thing I want to say about this is that the like an open wall has a great function, which is it provides a home for all the wiring and piping for your house. So that's definitely one reason why it's worth considering this kind of design. They write here, if the air barrier is developed at the sheathing plane on the outside of the initial stud cavity, an additional leaf of insulation is added to the outside of that, then the electrical distribution system is contained well within the controlled perimeter of the building. In other words, they're just recounting the perfect wall concept where you have the insulation on the outside. That way, the inner leaf of that wall is is completely protected from the outside environment. And that way, your piping and wiring is safe. They continue. Combining the vapor barrier with the air barrier on the face of the sheathing produces a perfect wall for mixed climates. So Japan is definitely a mixed climate. The stud cavity is then left vapor open to the interior and punctures through the interior finish are no longer a great concern. Hygrothermal analysis must confirm the seasonal drying potential at a specific building site. But that is something I will definitely consider, creating a stud cavity on the interior of the house that is vapor open and it'll function as a place to house all of the utilities. That is where I will leave the Passive House Details book for the time being. The last chapter on case studies is an, another great chapter, and it's something I would recommend once you're more deep into the planning phase, trying to figure out what kind of design and details you want. And you can look at the different case studies across the United States for ideas. And the United States is honestly a great, great place to study because it has a huge variety of climate zones. And they write here that for the book as a whole, an effort has been made to represent a variety of climate zones from New Mexico to Michigan. So I consider the book a great resource. So I'll leave you with a final highlight about the case studies of the book. The final inventory of case studies derived from a network of architects and certified passive house consultants who have completed a number of projects. They have also made frequent contributions to technical seminars and passive house conferences around the country. In the end, these are projects with interesting stories to tell. Together, they speak of the creative opportunity that can be found in a high-performance design to the passive house standard. One last thought is that the case studies also varied in, in budget. So there were some projects that were built for low-income housing. There were others that were very expensive custom builds, others that were middle-class builds for small families. Um, and they all varied in, in how expensive they were to build in terms of materials, labor, etc. So it's another great reason to, to get the book, to learn about all these different ways, and to know that high-performance design uh, should not be relegated to custom expensive housing. We need to do better. I think that... Uh, I think the building industry needs to continue to strive for these high standards and not just for those can, who can afford it because it's, it's kind of a myth. Um, it, it can be affordable if you have the right plan, the right design, and a good team behind you. So I hope you learned something new. Thanks very much for listening, and I'll see you next time on Local Japan. <laughs>